Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. I mean, it's a founder that has done it so many times. I mean, he started, you know, going at it with his ideas and with how to bring solutions to the world, you know, just as early as being in high school. But, you know, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rob Frowein. So welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, love being on. So originally born in New Jersey, you were raised there, you know, by your parents. Your father was a physician and very close to Philadelphia. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was, how was life growing up? Life growing up, I, I lived in the, uh, I, my, where I grew up, uh, a lot of people, when they think of New Jersey, they think of uh, the Sopranos and um, pretty, uh, you know, pretty much pollution industrial. But I, I lived in the garden part of the Garden State. Uh, really agricultural area, halfway between Philadelphia and Atlantic City. So it was a, it was a, it was a nice rural area. Um, had the challenges of being a rural area, but uh, but yeah, that's where I'm from. That's where my parents decided to raise all of us. Where do you think you got that entrepreneurial book? Because it sounds like uh, you know you were really into it. You know, from an early age. You know, it's that's actually somebody nobody's ever asked me that question. But yes, I was uh, from a very early age. I thought of ideas, uh, and I, I would see a problem, and I think it became muscle memory for me, uh, where I'd see something not working right or creating a challenge, and my mind would immediately go to some sort of solution. So when we started separating out trash uh, for recycling, I thought, well, why not have a trash can with two compartments? You know, because it's really a pain to only have a one compartment trash can when you're doing that little stuff like that. And uh, I think, I, you know, but I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was just I was growing up in an area that was kind of uh, very relaxed, very chill, didn't have a lot going on. And so my mind wandered and that's where it wandered. I, I just was so fascinated with the idea of starting something. Now, in your case, you know, you went to you ended up going to college. Uh, and then right after that, you know, you decided that uh, consulting, you know, was perhaps the way to go. And, I, and I'm sure that the whole world of consulting, perhaps it uh, helped you to really, you know, think about ideas or think about about perhaps solutions that you would bring. Because I find that consulting, it helps you to, to grab a big problem and then break it down into small problems. And then you tackle one after the other. So I guess, how do you think that that consulting experience shaped the way that you approach problems? Yeah, well, I, I worked for Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture, and I was doing really programming, um, software development for them. Uh, and a lot of it was Y2K, getting Y2K compliant because we were 10 years away from that and everybody was nervous about that. You know, I, I, I went into consulting for the exact reason that you said, which was I thought I'd get exposure to a wide variety of industries and I'd really figure out what made me tick. Um, what I actually found was was quite different. I found that the objective of that organization at that time, and it may not still be this way, was to have a situation where if I was a year and five months into the job or two years and five months into the job, and I got hit by a train and I died, they could go find somebody else that was there at Anderson for that exact amount of time 
and just plug that person in and, and they'd have no loss in productivity. So the thing that really hit me wasn't so much what I was learning, what I thought I was going to get exposed to a lot of things. It was the fact that I felt like I wasn't able to be creative enough. And I was so desperate um, to use my creativity and curiosity to, to work on things, probably at an age way before I was ready to do it. And it actually turned out that way. And in your case, you know, you ended up leaving to start a business. Now, the business was around collectibles and it ended up not having the outcome that you had hoped for, even though you got access to the, you know, Hall of Fame for baseball, which is a really good positive thing. I'm sure that the, as the saying goes, you either succeed or you learn. So what was the lesson that you took away with you from that business? Well, it, it turned out I learned that you could build a product, but you need to understand product market fit was one. Like, do people actually want the product you're, you're creating? And number two, I actually going to market it. I had a limited amount of money. I created a trading card set. Um, at the time, I had signed a contract with Randall Cunningham, who was the lead, who was the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, my favorite football team, to do a, light, a trading card set on his life and times. Um, and then the NFL actually... Um, did not allow me to actually complete that set. So I created a totally different set, an animated kind of sports card set around football. And I just produced this trading card set. And I got 6,000 of these sets sold, which sounds like a lot, but not when you're selling them for about $1.50 a piece. It's not a lot of money. Um, so, you know, I learned that you really need to figure out what the market looked like, you really need to figure out how to market, and you need to make sure you had a budget. To market, uh, and I, I just thought if I built it, you know, the customers would come. That their uh, thoughts on this and their excitement about it would would match mine, and and that's not how it actually works in practice. And once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. In this case, you thought it was law school. What it was next for you? Why? Well, you know what I. So I, I got married very young. Uh, my wife and I recently celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary. Um, so wow. I got married pretty young. I was 23. And I um, I was taking a walk with her one night. And, you know, and we always talked about, like, our future and, you know, might have kids. I just realized, like, I'm a bum. I'm not making any money. I, I have to have a skill that I can fall back on. Even if I want to be an entrepreneur in the future, I need to have a skill. Um, you know, separate and apart from just my undergrad degree. So I made a plan to go back to law school uh, and that I would just make it happen. Uh, and so I spent the next year and a half prepping to go to law school. But in the interim year before I went to law school, I worked for a company called the Franklin Mint, which was at the time uh, the largest mark direct marketer in the world of collectibles. And I ran a sales channel. And that was really important in my life. Because during that year, I learned how to actually market products and market products that you wouldn't think people would want, um, like collectible symbols with cat pictures painted on them. But what it really showed me was like, you can find markets. How do you find the market? How do you market people? How do you track the data? And frankly, all digital marketing right now finds its roots in some of the direct marketing I was doing back in the early and mid 90s, for sure. Now, after, you know, you end up leaving uh, or leaving or graduating more than anything, you know, you ended up getting really into law and uh, you did become the general counsel of uh, several companies. So first you did the whole law firm thing. Then from there, you jumped more to get closer to the operational side. And one of the companies that you actually, you know, were part of, which was SAP Media, 
It was a VC-backed company. And that was around the time where, you know, the dot-com, you know, bust, you know, happened. And I think that, you know, this this gives you an advantage nowadays because you've been able to really experience cycles, you know, in a, in a, in a real way. So I guess, what was the experience like to go through that? And what did you learn in order to tackle cycles, like maybe like the one that we're dealing with now in a powerful way? Yeah, I, I learned a lot. Um, we, we went through several rounds of layoffs. Um, so I learned about hiring, going through the cycles of having to let people go and the pain that that causes people. I learned about, you know, what what's needed to get a product out on the market and demonstrate not just product market fit that you could actually execute and get a product on out to the market, period. Um, I learned a lot about management and how to manage board and how to manage, you know, other members of the executive team and people's expectations. Mostly I learned it because I don't know that I did it particularly well at that time. Um, and when that company was winding down, I agreed to help it go through its wind down over the course of the last several months of 20 of 2001, 2001. It was from those offices um, that I actually watched 9-11 unfold. So all this stuff is indelibly kind of marked in my brain. Uh, and I, um, you know, I found, you know, I found that I, I learned a lot and I, you know, and I wanted to build something different going forward that I needed to, I needed to still be an entrepreneur that it hadn't. The other thing I think I learned is that it didn't kill my spirit, it didn't kill my entrepreneurial spirit. And I think when you go through all those things and with the exclamation point of 9-11 um, happening and you still want to be an entrepreneur, in fact, that is four days after 9-11 happened is when I decided I was going to start my own set of businesses and go after it myself. And so, you know, I think that's when you really figure out whether you're, you're meant to be an entrepreneur or not. Well, hey, I guess that was the universe, you know, slapping you across the face and saying, Rob, wake up. It's time to go at it again as an entrepreneur. It's your time. And I guess, hey, you know, at that point, you started Lava Group. Uh, you basically, you guys were doing stuff around IP, uh, service-based uh, more than anything business, so not uh, the VC-backed uh, companies that nowadays you're 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 rolling out, uh, and also you started your own law firm, you know that you built to over sixteen lawyers. Now, I guess that you know this allowed you also the time to really test through things, to really see you know what worked, what didn't work, but more importantly, this was the immediate steps that needed to happen in order for you to come across the idea of cabbage, which really happened, you know, during a brainstorming session for a, for a client. You were preparing for a client meeting and then all of a sudden, you know, the whole idea of, I mean, a massive idea, massive market, all of a sudden comes knocking. So what happened? Yeah, you know what? I, I think there was actually some things embedded in that whole experience I had when I first started those businesses in 01, 02, 03. Um, I didn't have a trust fund. I had two kids. Uh, my wife was a stay-at-home mom at that point. Um, we really didn't have any money. Um, and I would lie awake at night, um, literally worrying about how I was going to pay bills. I mean, I some real horror stories from that period of time in my life. And I think those things were so embedded within me that the idea for Cabbage, which was to help provide working capital to small businesses, um, was something that immediately clicked in my mind. And, and looking back at it, I think it clicked in my mind because it's exactly what I needed um, several years before. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it was really a, a 
a combination, a confluence of factors that came together. One was that experience I had had before. Number two was I, I asked myself this question, which you do in some brainstorming, which is what would happen if a company like eBay bought a company that provided credit? And at that point, they had not bought a company called Bill Me Later, which was something they did about a year later. Um, and I said, well, they'd probably provide working capital to those poor small businesses that need it, just like that business I had many years ago. And I also realized at that point, I was working with, for another company, I was helping them, uh, I was helping another company that was using APIs from companies like eBay um, to pull down data about small businesses and about things being sold online. And I thought, what if you could take that data, the idea of providing working capital to small businesses, put this all together and you could underwrite these small businesses on a real-time basis? That would be pretty interesting. That idea stuck with me for about a year, over a year, until I decided, you know what, I, I have to do this idea. It keeps nipping me in the heel, uh, which to me was the sign it was a good idea. Sometimes you need to let ideas, you know, like percolate for a while, um, and the good ones will stick around. There's a, um, there's a really funny interview with Paul McCartney um, where, you know, he says that, you know, he never wrote music down. Uh, and they said, oh, my God, can you believe the number of additional Beatles songs that if you had just written these things down, how many more Beatles songs? Why, why, didn't, why didn't you write them down? And he said, well, if I couldn't remember them, then they couldn't have been very good. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it's very similar to that with ideas, which is, you know, if these ideas keep coming back to you, then it's something's probably worth a little bit more investigation. So all of a sudden the idea comes back to you just like the music to Paul McCartney, and you decide it's time to pick up the phone and to call Catherine and Mark. So why at that point you thought that you had to take action and why you thought that they were the right individuals to receive your phone call? It's also a good question. I had started businesses in the past by myself for the most part, and they hadn't had, they had, had varying levels of success. My earliest, you know, and I, I just realized, and I also realized something about the company's at media. We were a consumer electronics company uh, as well as an entertainment-focused company. We had nobody that had expertise in entertainment or consumer electronics in the business. So every mistake we had to remake in the trying to build that company. And so I wanted to find people who had the experiences that I didn't have. Mark had a lot of experience raising money uh, and building a couple of other companies in, in Metro Atlanta area. We built a company in Atlanta. Catherine was an expert in the area of financial services and fintech. I have a funny story about how I came to understand that about her, which I won't bore you with right now. But, you know, those were the two people I felt like had the had those types of skills that I needed to help bring together in order to make this company successful. And I think it's really important to find that those types of ingredients in your founding team. So what ended up being the business model of Cabbage for the people that are listening to, to get it? Yeah, so when we started, we were focused on providing working capital, so basically small business loans um, with a bank partner to small businesses that sold online. We eventually expanded that to include all small businesses. So think of these not just as companies that are selling products on eBay through Amazon's marketplace, but also, also businesses that are coming and repairing your dishwasher. It might be the person who owns the restaurant or the bar or the dry cleaner down the street. 
all sorts of small businesses out there. And what and the way we did it, which was hyper important, was we asked them to give us access to data services that related to services that they use to run their business. So this could be anywhere from for the online sellers, the marketplaces where they operated on, um, or it might be for all the other businesses, their bank account, their, the accounting package that they use, could be an inventory system that they use, all sorts of different things. And it's funny how sometimes you get lucky because getting access to that data on a, on a real-time basis, which means they actually gave us um, direct access via APIs to those data sources, allowed us to offer them, you know, a loan immediately. As soon as they came to the site, we didn't have any other review period necessary. Number two, we could offer them a line of credit. And the reason why that was so important was because we stayed connected to the data, we weren't sure why we decided to have them stay, to stay connected to the data, but we made that decision early on that more data, better. Because we stayed connected to that data, they only had to take, you know, if we gave you an offer for $50,000, you could take 5000 now and you could come back at any point thereafter and take more capital if you had an open to borrow limit there. And because we constantly were connected to data, we were underwriting them on a daily basis. And so we know how they were performing then. We eventually expanded the business to include bank accounts, payments, uh, credit cards, debit cards, gift certificates, other things. But we grew the business to serve half a million small businesses over the ensuing, you know, decade plus. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, the, 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 the beauty of lending is that you have product market fit almost instantly. And I think that that also, you know, has the, Obviously, the positive, you know, of, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you have people lining up, but also the negative because you got to go about structuring things and making sure that you're not going to die out of success. So how did you guys navigate that? It was uh, it was a, it's kind of a thrilling thing to think, you know, it's that one product where, you know, everybody knows what it is. They know what it's valued at. They know how to use it. 
So you don't have to explain to anybody any of those things. You have to explain a lot of other terms, you know, obviously how much they're going to get and what the pricing is going to be and what the repayment responsibilities are. Um, and when you're in the money business, uh, you're always looking for inventory. So it was a situation where we were in due diligence for, you know, 10, 12 straight years, which means we had to keep a data room always up to date. Uh, we always either had an equity investor looking at us or a debt investor looking at us. Uh, and we always had to be able to provide lots of data back. And it's a, with lending, it's an ebb and flow situation. You get some equity, you build some products so you can release them to the market. You know, you get some debt so you can provide that money to your to your customers. You show some success and then you rinse and repeat and you have to go out and get more money. Um, it's a very, very, and you have to be very careful too, because it is not hard to lend people money. Everybody will take money. It's very hard to get people to pay you back and pay you back on the terms that you have requested. And so that's really the art and science of it all is making sure you lend to the right people um, and that you have the right systems in place to make sure you get the money back. And obviously for lending people, you need to raise debt capital. So how do you go about subsidizing debt capital? Uh, so, you know, the, the interesting thing is you when you when you go out and I, I talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs right now who are starting businesses, not similar to Cabbage, but probably, you know, in the same areas, lending for this or that. Uh, and right now they're trying to optimize for a very difficult capital set of capital markets, meaning that cash right now is very expensive. Um, and so they say, well, I can't take this cash because then I'll have to charge my customers so much more. And I don't want to take advantage of them in that way and, and, and the rest of it. And what I always tell them is you have to figure out what it is that you're trying to solve for right now, what you're trying to prove. If you're trying to prove that you have a great market and you have people who want your product and they're willing to pay you back, it's incumbent upon you to go get the capital and frankly, probably overpay for it. That doesn't mean you should turn around and charge your customers a heck of a lot more because of it. Because then not, you're not proving your model. You're proving a different model, right? A more expensive model. And, and it's incumbent for you to, if you, were, if you think that at scale, you're going to be able to access capital, you know, instead of at 15%, you're going to be able to access it at 5%, then you create two income statements. One income statement is your actual income statement that shows you're paying 15% of capital. The other one is that you show your investors is when I get larger and I'm able to access capital for 5%, this is what my income statement will look like. And by the way, you charge your customers what you would have charged them with 5% capital. That way you're actually proving your model. You're proving what your business is going to look like at scale. And it's a really important thing because there's just, and that means you have to go out and raise more equity capital. That's just the fact of the matter is that's, that's your burden to bear to prove your business. Just like everybody's got a burden to bear to get the product market fit. You didn't have to worry about that. This is the thing you have to worry about. And with Cabbage also, you guys raised quite a bit of money. You raised uh, over $400 million on the equity side uh, through six different BC rounds that you guys did, billions that you raised too on the debt side to be able to operate the business. And then eventually, the company got acquired by Amex. Uh, CNBC reported it for over $850 million of a transaction. But I guess, what was that process like, going through an acquisition like that? It was an interesting process because at the same time we were 
obviously the pandemic, well, so, so lay out some of the time. And we started talking to Amex before the official pandemic set in in the U.S., so early March. So those were very early conversations, obviously. We knew a lot of the people there. They're great people. Um, but we really didn't start talking about them maybe buying us until until that early March timeframe. Then the pandemic sets in, which affected small businesses in an extreme way, as everybody knows. Um, and PPP, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, was launched to help small businesses and their employees. And we became very actively engaged in that and became, during the first two rounds of capital delivery, became the second largest lender in the U.S. by a number of customers behind Bank of America. So we had a company of, you know, a few hundred people versus a company of about 270,000 people uh, and came in just just below Bank of America in, in that effort. Meantime, I was simultaneously negotiating with American Express and went through multiple offers with them uh, before we came to an agreement as to as to, you know, what to what the deal was going to be for them to acquire the company. So needless to say, there wasn't much sleep going on at that time, but I, that's true for so many people. Uh, there were no there were no playbooks uh, available for anyone during that time frame. And, you know, we had to support a PPP program that was something that was just dreamed up in a matter of days by the government uh, and then put into law. And then we had to execute across the entire uh, that entire experience, which was uh, around the clock experience for everybody in the company. And we had gone through a furlough as well because we we had to unfortunately go from just under 600 people to well below 300 um, uh, in a matter of a week um, after the pandemic set in, which was very very sad uh, because we had built an incredible culture, an incredible set of employees, and they certainly didn't deserve uh, what was going on out there. So then, so then in this case, you know, the um, the transaction ends up happening with American Express, uh, and then you know, you you stay the you know there. I mean, you had a conversation with them, but you already had something in mind. You already had something in mind, and that was not staying for long uh, with Amex. So, what happened there, and then what happened next? Yeah, so you know, I I was originally signed to a couple of year deal, uh, but it it was a situation where most of the things that I did for Cabbage were not things that were needed um, by American Express. Um, I ran, you know, the board. I ran capital raising. I ran finance, legal. You know, I I ran a bunch bunch of other groups, sales and marketing, uh, and they had all of these functions, you know, at. American Express. In fact, we had a lead, an amazing lead of sales and marketing who worked for American Express. And she reported to me, like, why do you need to have me sit between, you know, me, you know, one person report to me? That's just kind of unnecessary. And she was so, so good at what she was doing. So, I, you know, I, I talked with them and I basically explained it and we worked out um, arrangement and I, I was able to leave after a year and two months. And I didn't have an idea of exactly what I was going to do when I left, but I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur again. Um, those thoughts never left my head. I still have ideas every day. Um, my poor wife has to listen to them all the time because most of them are ridiculously bad. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, there's a decent one out there. So, yeah, I needed to do it. It was It's just part of who I am, my makeup. 
So it sounds like Keep Financial, you know, was decent enough and also kept coming to you, just like uh, music songs. So in this case, you go at it and, uh, you know, eventually Catherine, you know, also joins you again, you know, on, on this journey. So for the people that are listening, what are you guys doing at Keep Financial? So what we're doing is we're solving an issue with people. Um, I have to say more than a third of my time while I was uh, at Cabbage was spent either interviewing people. Catherine and I interviewed every single employee who joined up until we had about 375 employees. And then we interviewed probably more than half of the other people. We just kind of ran out of time with our travel schedule and everything else. But we trained up people on how to interview. And the... So that was a huge amount of my time. Another huge amount of my time was trying to talk people from out from leaving and to deal with issues that arose because we didn't have enough people. So Keep Financial really enables employers to secure retention, secure employees, secure performance through providing employees with upfront compensation that vests over time. Uh, and so think of these kind of like retention bonuses that are paid up front. Um, you have uh, many forms that exist right now, like signing bonuses, relocation bonuses, tuition reimbursement, where there's an ongoing expectation to stick around. But we're doing it and we're, we're overtaking most of those situations for lots of companies right now because existing products actually don't work very well. Uh, and I won't go into the details there. Uh, and then we're also helping companies replace stock-based compensation, handle spot loans, um, handle all sorts of other use cases, M&A retention pool money, allow employees to access that early. So lots of different things. But our ultimate objective is to, to really own the space called flexible compensation. It's where employers size what compensation, both equity and cash, is going to go to an employee. And um, employees uh, personalize it and make it work for them. You and I, uh, as well as everybody else that's listening to this uh, podcast, all have different situations in our lives, and we all have different needs at different times. And we think that the compensation systems are not built for that kind of flexibility. And so we intend to um, make sure that they are going forward so that you can get more value out of the compensation you're being paid, and employers can get a lot more value out of the compensation they're paying their employees. And obviously, as everything, you know, when you are, are a repeated successful entrepreneur, investors throw money at you. And that's why you raised a killer seed round, you know, not, not long ago, uh, last year, where you have people like Andreessen. I think you raised a, a, little, a little bit over $9 million. Is that right? Yeah, we did. We, uh, we raised a little over $9 million. Uh, Yeah, it was a very different experience. I had this idea, put together a deck, right, because that, that's what always helps me think through the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of an idea, put together a deck, refined it for a couple of investors, took it out. Um, and I had a term sheet before I actually formed the company. Um, so I had to, had to quickly form the company, you know, and, uh, and sort of move forward on it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a very different experience. Cabbage, it took us 11 months, 10, 11 months to raise $500,000. Wow. Uh, and that was super hard fought. Um, and, uh, although I, I also had, there's a certain, um, there's a certain love I have for that period of time too, but it was really hard. Um, I, I definitely prefer what happens now. So let me ask you this. If you were to go to sleep tonight, since we're talking about investors, let's talk about vision too, because that's why you sold them as well. So if you were to go to sleep tonight, 
and you wake up in a world where the vision of keep financially is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think the world where keep has been fully realized, um, it, I can answer that on a, on a few in a few areas. One is um, we're the compensation system that's employed by enterprises large to small businesses. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, the employees, most importantly, have an ability to personalize their compensation to fit their situation. And maybe they don't even have to do it themselves. Maybe there's generative AI that can take a look at all their bills. Let me leave it this way. Financial advisory to me is not wealth advisory. Um, wealth advisory is, is unfortunately only accessible to a small percentage of the population. But everybody needs financial advisory. Everybody needs somebody to help them understand how to manage their cash flow so that they have the capital they need to be able to do the things and take care of their family the way they want to. Um, and, I, and in my world, your compensation fits your situation and it's managed effortlessly through this system. Uh, and that would be my, that'd be my dream. Uh, and that we'd have you know, the trillions of dollars of compensation uh, that are paid every year in the US and then the many more trillions of compensation that are paid internationally running over our system uh, and helping people be more financially healthy and savvy. Sounds like a beautiful world, Rob. Now, obviously, you know, there we're talking about the future. Let's talk about the past. Uh, let's talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to give you the opportunity of being in a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, maybe back to that moment that you were still in school and wondering, you know, like what you could do, you know, what kind of business you could start. If you were able to have a chat with that younger Rob, and give that younger Rob one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, after all these companies that you've started? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great question. Well, it, one, one general idea, and this is not the, the piece of advice necessarily, but I don't know that I necessarily changed too many things happen in my life because I'm happy about the impact we've been able to have and my opportunity to pursue something that's been really important to me. Uh, and I, I'm a big believer that, you know, all of these little things you do during the course of your life lead you to where you are now. And so I, I, I don't want to be ungrateful um, for the success that I've, that I've been able to have. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, you know, I think the advice um, that I probably give myself is, uh, you know, is what I call the dark years in my life. From 93 through 96, I was going to law school and I was practicing law. And that was the birth of the internet. And I, I think, you know, sometimes you make certain decisions at times in your life and you do them for the right reason, which is clearly what I did. Um, but that would have been a really good time to have applied my creative curiosity chops to what was happening out there, which is the internet revolution and, and how that relates to life right now. It's AI. And so, you know, if I were giving advice to somebody right now, my advice to them would be AI is going to change every facet of life, everything that's going on right now, every little thing that happens in the course of your day. Think about how it might apply to everything that you interact with every day, every week, and including personal, professional interactions, emotional um, thoughts you have. It's going to apply to a lot of things. The, the next set of hyper successful entrepreneurs are going to be created out of artificial intelligence. Uh, and 
it'd be fun to be a part of that and to be instrumental and make a dent in the world doing that. I love that. So Rob, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Super simple. Uh, just uh, rob at keepfinancial.com uh, is, is the easiest way to reach me. I'm a, I, I, I still have an addiction to email, um, so, uh, so no problem there. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn uh, very, very easily. So uh, as long as you know how to spell my last name, you should have no issue. <laughs> Not a lot of people with my last name. Amazing. Well, Rob, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. An honor to be on. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.